scriptures and turn, please, to John chapter 16. Working our way through the gospel of John. The Terminal, I don't know if you've seen that movie, with Tom Hanks. The Terminal is a story of a foreign traveler named Victor Navorsky, played by Tom Hanks, who arrives at JFK Airport from his home country of Krakosia. And he finds himself in an interesting predicament. While he was in flight, there's been a revolution over in Krakosia, And the government actually doesn't exist anymore. His home country doesn't exist anymore. And so when he presents his passport to the customs officer, he cannot let him into the United States because it's no longer a valid passport. Yet, he cannot go home because the home that he left is no longer home. It no longer exists. So Victor is trapped between homes in the airport terminal where Victor lives for a time in kind of a purgatory, nowhere, if you will, between a home that he cannot go back to and a future home that he cannot get into. That's kind of how the disciples were feeling in the upper room. As Jesus was describing what was going to happen to him. As he was describing, just as we saw last week, how the world is no longer their home. The world is going to hate you because of me. So they no longer have the home they once had. And because he's telling him that he's leaving them, they no longer have the home that they currently have with him, Jesus. So the disciples are feeling this nowhere feeling in the upper room. And here Jesus, in our text today, encourages them by telling them it's good that he's going away. Look with me at verse 5 in chapter 16. Jesus says this to these disciples who are feeling this way. Now I'm going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me where you're going. Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I want to pause there for a moment and and let you know that chapters 14, 15, and 16, part of the five chapters, three of the five chapters of the upper room, is probably the, the most comprehensive uh, display or, or explanation of the Holy Spirit's work in all of Scripture. Jesus is taking time. And as we saw several weeks ago when we went through chapter 14, he's taking time to, to talk to them about what the Spirit is going to do. And one of the ways that we looked at previously is that the Spirit was going to be their comforter in chapter 14. He's not going to leave them as orphans like Tom Hanks in the terminal. He's going to send the comforter who will comfort them, 
who will walk alongside them, pick them up, and carry their burdens. He also told them that this Holy Spirit that he's going to send will be their counselor, the person that will speak into your life, that will encourage you along your journey, who would counsel you when you doubt your salvation, that, that whom Jesus has in his, man, his hand no man can pluck out that can encourage you as you age, that on the outside you might be wasting away, but inwardly you're being renewed. That can encourage you and remind you of the gospel when you feel all alone, when you feel unloved. That the person of Jesus Christ left his perfect home to come and claim you as his own. You have to remember those things. And this is part of the work of the Holy Spirit to counsel you like that. And we also saw that he, thirdly, a couple weeks ago, that the Spirit is our helper. He gives us the power. He gives us the desire. He gives us the passion to obey God. Not just out of dry duty, not just out of, he said so, so I'll do it, but because I want to please my Savior. He helps us and develops that in us that we will actually hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And so we begin to see the truth of what Jesus is saying in the upper room, that it's actually good that he's going away. There's some, there's some good things that are coming, he's encouraging us. And here he completes his teaching on the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verse 8 and following. Jesus says this, When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus says that the Spirit will be comforter, counselor, and helper, but he will also be the convictor. When the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, he's saying. The word convict here is really courtroom language in the Greek, and it's used as cross-examining a person until that person sees or admits the truth. That's what Jesus is meaning here. As commentator William Barclay said, clearly such cross-examination can do two things. It can convince a man that he is wrong or convict a man of the strength of the opposing case. And I think both are applied here. Both are meant when Jesus is saying this Holy, the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world. It's going to convict them and convince them. It will convince and convict the world, first of all, he says, of sin. Verse 9, in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. The work of the Holy Spirit is, in one sense, a very broad work. It's, It's a broad work in that it convinces the world that there is such a thing as sin. I mean, you and I don't have to go very far to, to start to realize that the world really doesn't 
like the word sin. It doesn't like to think of sinful things. It doesn't like to think that they actually sin. They come up with, and we come up with too, don't we? Different words. It was a mistake. It was a white lie. The Holy Spirit convicts the world that there is such a thing. And even more specifically, it convicts and convinces our hearts that we are sinful. It's not just a thing for out there. You know, God doesn't, doesn't make the church so we can stand up on a holy hill and point to the world and shake our finger to the world. No. He wants that x-ray to be turned back on our own hearts. And that's what the Holy Spirit's work is, to convince us. But here, I think Jesus is being even more specific. Jesus says the Spirit will convince a person of sin because men do not believe in me. Jesus is saying here is the sin that he'll convict the world of is rejecting him. The sin of unbelief. The Holy Spirit will convict people of their sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. This is what we see at Pentecost, that great chapter 2 in the book of Acts, don't we? Here all these people are from the world. They come in to Jerusalem 40 days after the crucifixion, and they're, and they're celebrating. They're there for Pentecost. And the wind comes, doesn't it, to these believers that are gathered there. And fire comes and lights on them. And people are confused, and people are saying, what's going on here? What, you know, some people are saying, boy, people are starting to speak in foreign languages, and they're saying, these people are drunk. And Peter, of course, stands up, and he starts preaching from our, the scripture that we just read together. Joel chapter 2. Peter stands up and explains that the Holy Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was going to come after the Savior came. And then he says this. He goes on to say, whom you, he's pointing, he's talking to these men and women, whom you, with the help of wicked men, put to death by nailing him to the cross. God made this man whom you crucified, both Lord and Savior. Boy, that's a nice message. You. He doesn't sugarcoat it, does he? He says, you did this. You killed him. The person that came to show you love and peace, you killed. See, Peter is making it personal. These, many of these people were not even in Jerusalem when the crucifixion took place. And he's saying, you And listen to their reaction in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? There you are seeing the work of the Holy Spirit right there. From verse 36 to 37. They were cut to the heart. They were accused of rejecting the Savior and killing him. And suddenly, they're not defensive I wasn't even in Jerusalem. They go, you're right. Instantly, they're convinced that they were the scoffers. Listen, the Spirit is doing his work of making Jesus' death 
intensely personal. The application for us is that's what the Spirit does. That is his work in the life of a person to make Jesus' death intensely personal. Not something that happened, not a historical fact that we can read about, that you participated in that. Today, sitting right here, there should be a personal connection that you feel between the crucifixion and gruesome death of Jesus Christ and your sin. You should feel that. You should know what I'm talking about when I say something like that. We have a hymn that we sing here by Stuart Townsend. Perhaps you know it. How deep the Father's love of us. Do you know that one? How deep the Father's love of us. We sing it on Christmas Eve. And there's a verse that says, Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me home. I know that it is finished. That's good theology. That's what the Spirit does. He takes the crucifixion of Christ and he makes it personal. He convicts us of our sin. Our participation. It makes us feel and start nodding our heads when we sing that and we go, my voice was among the scoffers. Yes, it's saying what the Spirit will do will make you say in your heart of hearts and mind of mind, if I was there 2,000 years ago, I would have been a mocker. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting men and women of their sin. It was my sin that held him there. We would and do reject Christ. But praise God, the the Spirit just doesn't leave us there. That would be a very pressing, very heavy, very burdensome thing that if he did, he also convinces and convicts the world of righteousness. That's what verse 10 is all about. The Holy Spirit is going to convict the world in regard to righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you'll see me no longer. See, the Spirit just doesn't convict people of their sin. It convinces people that their righteousness isn't enough to overcome it. That's another work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about here. Have you ever wondered why the ascension is, is so important? Have you ever wondered why you know, it takes such a prominent role in the book of Acts? Have you ever wondered why the early church, in the first 300 years, all their creeds and confessions had, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, why is that so important that in the few lines that we say of the Apostles' Creed, the, the great minds would say, this has to be in there. 
It's important because the ascension is crucial. What is being said in the ascension is God the Father is testifying. God the Father is saying, by accepting Jesus into heaven, this is the kind of righteousness that I accept. This is the man that I accept. This is, this is the type of perfection that I accept. Tempted in every way, yet did not sin. I accept that. Perfection. That's what the ascension is saying. The righteousness that God requires is, as we have said here many times, a perfect standard. And that's a tough standard, perfection. And it's a, it's a standard, actually, that we, in our, in our fleshly hearts, don't believe, basically. We say, no, it, you know, we can be really good and still get in. There's a story about Winston Churchill that he was notoriously hard to work for. He was demanding and impatient and rude. And on one occasion, a servant was bold enough to stand up to him and tell him that he was rude. And Churchill looked at the servant and said, that was really rude. And the servant replied, well, you're really rude too. To which Churchill said, yeah, but I'm a great man. Maybe we take a, we are aghast at that. Maybe we don't think we're great. But most of us think we're pretty good. We think we're pretty good. I'm, I'm more good than bad. Some people think they're, they're really good. That's the predominant worldview held by most people. I fall into the good category. And that's good enough to get me accepted by God. That's the basic thought. It takes a lot of different structures, but that's the basic thought. So part of the Holy Spirit's work is to convince and convict people that they're not that good. That they're, they're missing the mark. That the good things that they do are really, as the Bible describes them, the good works we do are filthy rags. How many people here think that if you take a morning out of your week and you go and you help uh, a uh, single elderly woman build a ramp into their home, and you take time out, you, you, you buy the, the, the lumber and you build it, and you know, you're sweating, you buy the nails, that that's good. And the scripture says, might be filthy racks. Oh, are you kidding? How many of us right here are having that pushback in their heart? No way. That was good. That's how deep the wormhole goes, people. See, the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring a person to a sudden ultimate realization that only Christ's righteousness is good. Do you hear that? And do you push back on it? There's a wonderful illustration that comes from C.S. Lewis's um, Space Trilogy. 
And in the third book, that hideous strength, there's a scene that illustrates this. Ransom is the main character. And he visits, in the first two books, uh, the planets Mars and Venus. And then he comes back to Earth, which is dark and sinful and fallen. And while there, he, he witnesses uh, the descending of the Eldils, which are, in, in this space trilogy, the servants of the good God, which is his way of, of describing Yahweh God. And they're, the, they're descending, and they look like pillars coming down from the sky, pillars of light that are spinning and that are powerful. And he looks at them, Ransom does, and he, and he notices that the pillars are descending at about a 10-degree tilt. Those of you who have read the book, you realize this, you remember this. They're descending at a 10-degree tilt, and Ransom is looking at it, and he, he, he can't, why are they coming down at a 10-degree tilt to the earth? And then it suddenly strikes him. This is the beauty of C.S. Lewis. It strikes him that these eldils, these pillars of light and righteousness, are actually connected to the true vertical. And it's not the pillars that are skewed, but the whole world is skewed. And from that moment on, he cannot look at the world without seeing it as a little tilted. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It makes us suddenly see that God alone is righteous. His Son alone is righteous. He's connected to the true vertical. And the world and our hearts are tilted. Our righteousnesses are tilted. Ten degrees off. That's the work of the Holy Spirit giving the person a realization that the world in our hearts are not quite level. It convicts us of our righteousness. That's what we see in the life of Paul, isn't it? Hebrew of Hebrews, from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee among Pharisees, as to the law, spotless, as to persecuting those who I thought were against God, perfectly righteous. And then in in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he turns it all around. He has that Lewisinian moment where he says, but I realized that my righteousnesses were like garbage. I consider it all rubbish, he says, except for the righteousness that comes through Christ alone. There's that 10 degree tilt And thirdly, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, our righteousness, and convinces us, and perhaps convicts us, that there is such a thing as judgment. At verse 11, it says, The Holy Spirit convicts the world in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Lately, I've been showing my kids uh, little snippets of Monty Python sketches. Anybody here know Monty Python? Classic. I've been showing them uh, the bridge of death. You know, answer these questions three. The other side you'll see. Um, the, the black knight, mere flesh wound, right? And uh, just recently I showed them the um, 
Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. This sketch is built on a husband coming home and his, he and his wife start arguing about him being late and he just throws up his hands and goes, I didn't expect the Spanish Inquisition when I came home and they burst in. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition and they go on and on. It's very funny. The humor of the whole sketch is built on the fact that nobody really expects judgment. I mean, when you do something wrong, nobody's going to burst in and say, that was wrong, that was sinful. That's what the whole sketch is built on, the basic belief that the world has that there is no real judgment. It's not going to happen. There's no final day. There's no being held accountable. The world takes on different, different ways of saying that, you know, the atheistic way. There's actually no God, so how can there be no judgment? The annihilationist way, well, when we die, we're just annihilated. There's nothing after that. The no hell way, well, there's a heaven, but there's no real hell. That's the, that's the best one, right? There's no real just, justice. And there's the reincarnationist. You know, I don't face judgment. I just come back again and again and again until I get it right. That's what Willie Nelson believes. He wrote this, From the first moment I considered the concept of reincarnation, it made sense. The old paradigm of God's judgment was too cruel, just too unchristian to be believed. If you die in your sin, you spend eternity in hell. How could a compassionate God of mercy ever set up such a system, he says. On the other hand, I was drawn to the idea that you keep coming back until you get it right. Reincarnation seems merciful and completely Christ-like, he writes. Jesus got it right the first time around, after all, but he was God incarnate. But the rest of us need several lifetimes to get there. And the work of the Spirit is to convince and convict that that is not true. That, that Matthew 12, 36 is indeed true. Jesus speaking says, But I tell you that everyone will give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. And that can be a terrifying thing. I know when I say that, my own heart goes... If I'm going to give an account, that's terrifying. But then the gospel rushes in. Then I have to be disciplined and preach the gospel to myself. To tell myself that, that no, no, I'm not guilty. Yes, I sin, but I'm forgiven not because of anything that I've done. Not because of my tilted righteousnesses, but because of Christ's perfect obedience. And by trusting in that perfect obedience, that a great transaction, a spiritual transaction that we don't see or hear or taste or feel happens. That God, through his mercy, gives us his perfect righteousness to our account and he takes our filthy rags and places them on Jesus.
How can that be? No judgment left for me. All on Christ. How beautiful is that? That's the gospel. That's what we believe. And that's what's true. It's not tilted. It's true. The second work of the Holy Spirit, and I'll briefly mention, is that of guide. Look with me at verses 12 through 16. I have much more to say to you, Jesus says, than I can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only that which he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. In a little while you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you will see me. As we looked at the work of the Holy Spirit in chapter 14, there's two levels that he's talking on here. He's talking to the disciples who later on become the apostles. And indeed, they are. The, this is a promise to them that they will be guided to produce what we now call the New Testament. This is their a speech to them, if you will. He will guide them in all truth. He will tell them what is to come, a lot of future prophecy. He will make what is Jesus's, take what is Jesus's and make it known to them. He's informing the apostles of the honor that they're going to have of writing the very words of God, Ephesians 2.20. So how does this apply to us today? Well, we are certainly not guided into any new revelation. The canon is closed. There's no new words coming from the Lord. But the Holy Spirit is given to each one of us, and the work that he does is he illuminates the scriptures for us. He is the guide. He is the illuminator of of what we read in scripture. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active. The Spirit makes the word of God living and active. Able to separate bone from marrow. Able to separate your joints. The Holy Spirit is the one, the work of the Holy Spirit is the one who causes you and me to have aha moments. Do you, have you ever had those? Where you're reading along in scripture and you've read this a, a ton of times, or maybe you've read it just twice, but you read it and you go, and it comes to bear on a part of your life that it has never come to bear on before. Am, am I, am I alone in this? This is what the Spirit does. He makes the, the, the scriptures live, pop off the page. You have epiphanies. Oh, I, never, I didn't realize I was sinning in this way. I didn't know that. I've been doing this my whole life. And I, never re, I was never convicted of that before. Or I, I never understood that, that just in how God is guiding me, that I'm, I'm fulfilling God's law that way. How wonderful. How beautiful. 
The Spirit causes us to have those aha moments, those, those new ways of, of seeing ourselves in the world. Gary Thomas's book, The Beautiful Flight, records such an epiphany that he was on when flying out of San Antonio one time. As the plane ascended, he writes, it passed an enclave of mansions. These homes had to contain at least seven to 10,000 square feet each. Immaculate lawns and gardens, large pools, large garages. But from 2,000 feet in the air, it's amazing how small these homes looked. Another few thousand feet, and they became mere playhouses. And then he says this, and then it hit me. Not a home on this planet looks big from heaven. No house looks huge to God. The things that swell our chest look puny from another perspective. And so I began to pray, Lord, help me to see this world with your eyes. Otherwise, and here it is, I might value what you despise and despise what you value. That's the work of the Spirit. He helps you to get aligned to the beautiful vertical. He helps you to see what is true. He helps, gives you perspective to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. He gives you the ability to see that which the world hungers after is rust and dust. And to reprioritize your life. Give you new passions, new desires. Isn't that beautiful? It's not just law. It's not just don't do this, don't pursue this. He actually fills that void with new desires. With a passion to do his will. That's the work of the Spirit. And it only comes as you believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your words and for your scripture. And Spirit, another work that you do is you apply it to our lives and hearts and minds. And we ask you to do that. It's in your son's precious name. Jesus Christ, amen.